Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, a song of a beggar and a king. This is uh, out of a book I found uh, called "The Crown Garland of Roses." which was reprinted in 1842, based on a 1612 uh, printing. And uh, it has other names, this 16th century broadside ballad. Um, has other, other names, like uh, The King and the Beggar Maid. That's actually how I first heard of it. Um, and I heard about it not through the poem itself, but rather through a painting. Um, I spent a lot of my time looking at beautiful paintings, <laughs> and one I found by Edmund Leighton in 1898 is called The King and the Beggar Maid, and it was a striking image of a, a king uh, kneeling before a woman in a tattered dress, all in gray, um, and offering her his crown. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I wonder what the story's behind that. And of course... It was, um, as many uh, late 19th century paintings are about, it was based on something. It was not just randomly picked from the artist's brain. Um, and apparently this was quite a popular image. Um, so much so that um, I, I, I've not read the play, but uh, Love's Labor's Lost has a reference to the maid, beggar maid in this case. Um, and uh, so this would have been something in the air um, prior to its first publication of, in 1612. Um, that, that's why it's by Anonymous. We don't know who really wrote it, but the story seems to be um, referenced at least as far back as 1612, but probably into the Middle Ages. That's, that's what my research brings up. Mm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. It does have a, a feel of, uh, it, it, it's, to me, it sort of has a feel of the Renaissance because um, it, it feels like a fairy tale, mm -hmm. which in that sort of ageless sense that you're talking about. And we think, especially after the Grimm brothers with knights and things, and, and their telling of those same stories, we often think of fairy tales as being pseudo-medieval. You know, we've got castles and princesses and all of that. But this particular story also has displaces the action to Africa, mm -hmm. which um, is something that starts happening once you get into the age of exploration. Absolutely. Um, so Prester John is, is sort of this same vibe, right? This... Yeah, M Middle Ages sort of mythology that maybe it's true, but we don't really have a, dates or names that f match up with any history that we know. Um, Shakespeare used this uh, in a lot of, of his plays. Love's Labor's Lost is one I've not read, but um, I must have come across it in Romeo and Juliet. It's in Richard II, Henry IV, Part Two, and of course, A Midsummer's Night's Dream, all sort of referencing this very you know, obscure romance, but it's not the heart of any of those stories. This is the story itself, right? The one that right. is inspiring uh, Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, 
it might be that somebody, you know, picked up Shakespeare's um, references and codified it. I think not. I think he's referencing something that we don't have an earlier version of. So that's that's why um, when I went looking for the original, I was led down many paths, and this is the oldest one I could find that's uh, published. Right. So, you know, uh, if you look online, you'll find some ones with more modernized spellings of Africa. And, you know, many of the words here are spelled uh, oddly. Um, I think that's uh, just because it's a reprint from a 1612 book. Um, Right. But, uh, you know, the pronunciations also change over time. But uh, I think think, uh, we should read the story or read the poem have you read the poem and then get into why it is so compelling for so many uh, artists. I think the word artist is, is, uh, is apt here because as you said, Jesse, you first, the the first loose thread of this, this uh, sweater that you began to unravel um, was a visual art. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's important uh, to recognize the significance of sight mm-hmm. and blindness and words like look mm. um, um, in this in this particular telling. Um, I think that uh, the power of sight and the degrees to which it is or is not trustworthy is an underlying theme here. It's not just a romance. Uh, I'd also say, just a tiny preamble, because I don't think we want to take the time to read this uh, twice, maybe, but um, but I think not. Uh, It's called, in our edition that you found for us, A Song Mm -hmm. of a Beggar and a King. And I must say, the regularity of of the rhythm makes me feel that as with some Shakespeare poetry with that's set within the plays, this is meant to be set to music. I, I think um, you're right. Well, the, the problem with that, I'm, I'm glad that, that, that you, you share that feeling. It, it reinforces my faith in it. Uh, when one sings, <laughs> um, sometimes you change the stress on word. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sometimes change how you rhyme things. Uh, American country music is famous for that. Right. Where you can make um, love rhyme with gun, um, you know, yeah. or dog rhyme with beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, you know, they do it all the time. Um, so I'm going to try to read this as if it were a poem, because I don't trust myself to make up a melody for it. Right. But sometimes reading it as a poem, I'm going to have to, change the rhythm to conform with it as a song Mm -hmm. and that won't be as good a reading as if we read it as a straight poem is that okay Uh, perfectly fine okay thanks a song of a beggar and a king i read that once in africa a prince that there did reign who had to name kafetua as poets they did feign From nature's works he did incline, for sure he was not of my mind. He cared not for womankind, but did them all disdain. But mark what happened by the way, 
As he out of his window lay, he saw a beggar all in gray, which did increase his pain. The blinded boy that shoots so trim from heaven down so high, he drew a dart and shot at him in place where he did lie, which soon did pierce him to the quick. For when he felt the arrow prick, which in his tender heart did stick, he looketh as he would die. What sudden change is this, quoth he, that I to love must subject be? which never thereto would agree, but still did it defy. Then from his window he did come and laid him on his bed. A thousand heaps of care did run within his troubled head, for now he means to crave her love, and now he seeks which way to prove how he his fancy might remove, and not this beggar wed. But Cupid had him so ensnare that this poor beggar must prepare a salve to cure him of his care, or else he would be dead. And as he musing thus did lie, he thought for to devise how he might have her company, that so did maze his eyes. In thee, quoth he, doth rest my life, for surely thou shalt be my wife, or else this hand with bloody knife the gods shall sure suffice. Then from his bed he soon arose, and to his palace gate he goes. Full little then this beggar knows, when she the king espied. The gods preserve your majesty, the beggars all gan cry. Vouchsafe to give your charity our children's food to buy. The king to them his purse did cast, and they to part it made great haste. The silly woman was the last that after him did hie. The king he called her back again, and unto her he gave his chain, and said, With us you shall remain till such time as we die. For thou, quoth he, shalt be my wife, and honored like the queen. With thee I mean to lead my life, as shortly shall be seen. Our wedding day shall appointed be, and everything in their degree. Come on, quoth he, and follow me. Thou shalt go shift thee clean. What is thy name? Go on, quoth he. Penelophon, O king, quoth she, with that she made a low curtsy, a trim one as I ween. Thus hand in hand along they walk unto the king's palace, the king with treacherous comely talk, this beggar doth embrass, the beggar blusheth scarlet red, and straight again as pale as lead. But not a word at all, she said. She was in such amaze. At last she spake with trembling voice and said, O king, I do rejoice that you will take me for your choice and my degree so base. And when the wedding day was come, the king commanded straight the noblemen, both all and some, upon the queen to wait. And she behaved herself that day as if she had never walked the way. She had forgot her gown of gray, which she did wear of late. The proverb old is come to pass. The priest, when he begins the mass, forgets that ever Clark he was. He knoweth not his estate. 
Here may you read Cofetua through fancy, long time fed, compelled by the blinded boy, the beggar for to wed. He that did lover's looks disdain, to do the same was glad and fain, or else he would himself have slain in stories as we read. Disdain no wit, O lady dear, but pity now thy servant here, lest that it hap to thee this year as to the king it did. And thus they led a quiet life during their princely reign, and in a tomb were buried both as right. Writers show us plain, the lords they took it grievously, the ladies took it heavily. The commons cried piteously, their death to them was pain. Their fame did sound so passingly that it did pierce the starry sky, and throughout all the earth did fly to every prince's realm. It's, it's super simple, right? The story, the plot is, yeah. the underlining underlying themes and rhetoric, I think, is worth attention. Oh, absolutely. I'm just uh, like, uh, uh, why is it so compelling? Why is it such an interesting image? In part, I, th I think, like, uh, I, my, I notice my attention is drawn to uh, things that I don't, I think other people won't be as interested in, like... <laughs> but but maybe not. Um, so we've got this king, Cafetua, right? Who, or a prince, and you know, same thing, really, essentially. He's in Africa somewhere, we're told, and he has um, a problem. He's not normal. He has no interest in women. And he seems somewhat depressed, at least based on his body language. <laughs> He's looking out right. the window. He sees a, a woman, and suddenly he's struck by Cupid's arrow. It shoots into him, and he like he's like, I, I got problems now. I got serious problems. <laughs> My serious problem is I'm in love with that woman I've never even talked to. He he gets his stuff together. He goes downstairs. He goes out the front door. Uh, all the beggars in the street uh, are excited to see the king. They ask for money. He throws his purse to them. And then she's, uh, there's this uh, line, I'm a little bit unclear about what happens. Um, she says, well, she doesn't say much in the whole poem, but basically um, she's the either the last to leave or she's hiding. Did you see that word? Oh, What's I think, I, yeah, I think high means, as in high the handsome, means go away. Yeah. So she's the last one to leave. Right. So she's the last one to leave and he's like, no, you need to stay because I'm in love with you and you're going to be my queen. And I think, you know, that's the central image of the story. Um, but then, as they're walking back to the palace, um, he's he says something to her that makes her cheeks, cheeks go red. Um, and then her her uh, skin changes back to, it says, uh, lead color. I'm thinking <laughs> it's not so much lead as uh, pale uh, gray. Think, yeah, I don't know. She Blanche. She she blushes and then she blanches. Right. Yeah. Um, and then uh, they get married. Uh, he has. She acts like a queen, even though she's never been one before. She's not highborn. And uh, the servants of the king, you know, the lords and them, uh, all give her obeisance, and she acts perfectly well. 
uh, they live together as he promised until they die. They're buried together, and all the people are sad. So that's essentially the plot, right? But I was drawn to two things. One, he's suicidal. It, it comes twice. Um, yep. In thee, quoth he, doth rest my life, for surely thou shalt be my wife, or else this hand with bloody knife, the God shall sure suffice. That's like, um, you marry me or I'm going to kill myself. Um, it also right. could be, I'm going to kill us both, <clears throat> right? It's pretty uh, ambiguous there. The second time it comes is, um, here may you read Cofetua through fancy long time fed, compelled by the blinded boy, that's a reference back to Cupid or Eros, right? The beggar for to wed. He that did lovers' looks disdain, to do the same was glad and fain, or else he would himself have slain, in stories as we read. Now, that's where there's a transition, really interesting transition, to a very uh, brief thing that I think is is sort of meta-textual, um, and that is uh, the next the next sentence, or next two sentences. Disdain no wit, O lady dear, but pity now thy servant here, lest that it have to thee this year as to the king it did. So the, if I'm reading this right, that's the bard who is recounting this story which we, I think, can see from the very beginning. Um, he's telling a story that he read about once, the bard, whoever he is, um, mm-hmm. is saying, we need to take note of this. <laughs> Disdain no wit, O lady dear, but pity now thy servant here. It's almost like he's, I need to get paid for this poem I'm giving you, <laughs> this song I'm playing for you, lest that it hap to thee this year, as to the king it did. What's funny, though, is um, this could be read as either, you know, you fall in love with a strange beggar, <laughs> or uh, you kill yourself. I, I thought that was really odd, but it kind of enhances the yeah. storytelling for me. I agree completely that it enhances. I think it is odd. I think it that its role in the and at the end of this poem makes the plot much more complicated because suddenly retrospectively this is a story about the telling of the story mm-hmm. as you said it's meta mm-hmm. uh, so to understand the whole of this poem one needs on a second reading to understand that it is the telling of the poem that's the first move in the plot mm-hmm and the second move in the plot is whatever happens between the – I think of it more as a troubadour than a bard. I agree. Um, yeah. Between uh, – oh, okay. Um, the, the, between the troubadour and his listener, who is not a wide audience but in fact a single person. Probably a woman. Uh, so if you don't mind – oh, indeed. Uh, right. Um, oh, lady dear. But, you know, the, the spelling is a problem. Yes, it I is. I mean, dear is spelled D-E-E. E D E E R E, which if it were in a modern 21st century text, um, we would say, ah, it's reminding us that the, the homophony between the, the animal and one's object of affection. Mm-hmm. Um, but the next line, it rhymes with here, mm-hmm. H E E R E. So when it says 
Disdain no wit, O lady dear, but pity now thy servant here, lest that it hap to thee this year as to the king it did, is here a non-modern spelling of any word standing in for H-E-R-E mm-hmm. or standing in for H-E-A-R. Mm. Is the troubadour saying, pay attention or right, listen to my words or you may die um, or you may fall in love against your will. As you said, we don't know which is happening. Um, you you, you is might kill saying, yourself. Like, which is right. even, you know, it's like, yeah, right. it's almost like a threat. Like, you That's better pay me, you better, you better pay right. attention to my story, lest something bad hap to you. And hap is, you know, it's luck. It's right. happen. Right, but n- pity now thy servant here may mean that the troubadour is speaking to one woman only. Yes. Because it's someone playing at being a troubadour and right. it's actually someone who is in love with her. Mm-hmm. And she say, he is saying to her, you need to respond to my love as uh, Penelophon responded to Cofetua's love. Yeah. Because if she had not, Cofetua would have killed himself. If you don't respond to my love, you may kill yourself. So it may be about money, it may be about love, Mm -hmm. and it may be about someone singing about a third party, a prophecy, or it may be someone singing about himself. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons that I suggest this is really much more interestingly complicated, Mm -hmm. because it it reminds us that in the real world, love and money are often confounded. Oh, every Shakespeare plot is... is, uh... (laughs) Is a combination of power, love, and money, right? And and as my grandmother used to say to my sister, you know, there's rich or poor, it's good to have money. Yep. You can fall in love with a rich man as well as a poor man, right? It's interesting, of course, that she didn't say that to me because the presumption was I had to make the money for myself. <laughs> yep. But be that as it way, in the patriarchal world of of Shakespeare and my grandmother— Love and money are often confounded. He who has money has love. And in fairy tales, desirability and moral virtue are signaled by beauty. Mm-hmm. So this poem, this st- song, is all about, about sight. And, you, and the, the sights that they see, right? He sees her. Cofetua sees Penelophon. He is so stricken by love, the, the arrow goes to his quick, which means the heart, mm-hmm. uh, the beating heart, is so stricken by love that he not only goes out, throws around money in order to clear the court of other beggars so that he can snag the one he wants, mm-hmm. tells her, I'm going to wed you. She starts to leave, no, come back. You're going to be not my queen. He's, so you're going to be like queen. Mm-hmm. People, you'll be like a queen. But only after they wed does he realize she truly was a queen. Mm -hmm. Having the money and the station, she has fully embraced that role. So like a priest who forgets that he is a priest and becomes, you know, I know, think of myself, I'm the priest. He just is the priest the way I don't think of myself 
at the moment. I mean, I am now because I'm thinking about it. <laughs> I don't usually think of myself as a man. Mm. I just am a man. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't think of myself, right? I mean, it's yeah, just, of course. Right? Um, right. So she just is a queen, and it shows, shows immediately. So the blinded boy is the one who gives Kofetua this sight. And when she drops a perfect curtsy, we can see that she is really a queen, not because she began as a queen, but because she is invested with the power of money and love and social station. Now, it's interesting the way words get repeated in this. Mm -hmm. So she's constantly called a beggar, Mm -hmm. which is a reminder of her economic as well as social status. The boy is blinded. The thing that he does is shoot an arrow so trim. Mm -hmm. And we are told that she is trim. Mm -hmm. She is Cupid's tool. Cupid's tool is used to bring happiness to the king. This is, you know, many stories, Cinderella, for example. Mm -hmm. The king is the instrument to bring happiness to the the protagonist. Mm -hmm. In the case of Cinderella, she's rewarded for her obedience and tolerance. But in this story, it's the beautiful beggar who is the tool to bring happiness to the king. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting turnaround, which brings me, at least, back to that ending that you pointed at, Mm -hmm. the, the, the meta part. I can't help but think that... This fellow is acting the part of Troubadour so as to say, you know, you might kill yourself if you don't serve as the tool to bring me happiness. (laughs) The end of the story is I still need something else to happen, which is that you recognize my love. And although this is written in a in a song rhythm that makes it a little hard to read. I would point out that the rhymes, although they're a little twisted to modern ears, are always what would be called perfect rhyme, except the last line of the poem, where it says, um, as writers show us plain, the lords, they took it grievously, the ladies took it heavily, that is the death of the two. The commons cried piteously, their death to them was pain, their fame did sound so passingly that it did pierce the starry sky, and throughout all the earth did fly to every prince's realm. Yeah. Realm doesn't rhyme at all. No. Something is still amiss. Something still hasn't come together. And I think what is supposed to come together is the man playing a troubadour is saying, listen to the story. Mm. You're going to kill yourself if you don't realize how much I love you. Yeah. Act like Penelophon. Take my love. It, it is. Um, it the world right. And yeah. That will make the realm rhyme. At least that's how it seems to me. Yeah. I, I can see. I can see why. Uh, Shakespeare liked this so much. Um, he uses a trick over and over again in his plays where he has the play within the play to catch the conscience of the king. And that's exactly what happens in this story. I think the troubadour is trying to convince a woman 
of something by telling him about a, uh, telling her about a story that he read. He says, no, I just happen to have read this this uh, story, uh, you know, it was set in Africa, and I think uh, you might want to hear it. <laughs> and he convinces her in the same way that uh, Hamlet convinces uh, uh, his uncle to, you know, react um, in order to draw the conclusion that he wants. It's the conscience being aware right and that's what stories are really good at it it allows you to see your own hypocrisy uh through the lens of someone else it allows you to see your own life through the lens of someone else's life i think that's why this is a pretty interesting poem i agree i i once upon a time you mentioned this in the beginning um, this might have been a medieval or, as I was thinking, maybe a Renaissance, early Renaissance, anonymous broadside. You know, somebody printed it up to make a few bucks. Mm -hmm. So sometime after the beginning of the 15th century when printing presses exist, um, maybe it even was a medieval fabula and the troubadours went around singing it. Mm -hmm. But the story became a story that could be within a story so that with a story like this. There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.